going to start tonight with an old story, one that many of you are probably quite familiar with. Uh, I've told this story so many times, I almost feel like, you know, it's, it's gotten so old, and trying to think of some way to present it, to start it off, uh, that's interesting. It's really hard to come up with something. I was thinking something along the lines of, once upon a time in a city called New York, you know, <laughs> there was a man who walked up and down 14th Street vilifying people on cell phones. <laughs> Maybe a little too flowery. For years, I walked up and down that street to class, at the studio, not just to class, many times a day often. That's my, it was my neighborhood, and uh, I just had such aversion to all those folks, and of course there were more and more as the years went on, on the phones, talking on the phones, texting on the phones, uh, disliking, disliking, and going into stories. At some point, you know, so I don't, I don't have to go, I don't, you don't need a lot of backstory here, right? <laughs> yeah. At some point, I decided I was going to do something about it. You know, and this is kind of one of the things I've talked about, you know, on this retreat, you know, making decisions to lighten our burden. You know, what do we have in this suitcase that we can take out to lighten our burden? And at some point, I decided this was something a burden that I could lighten, take out, and that I needed to, because it was it was having a very uh, deleterious effect on the way that I was living. You know? So I decided to do something about it. It wasn't serving me. I wanted to lighten my burden. So I, you know, made a vow to be heedful whenever I walked up and down 14th Street. Not only 14th Street, but the other streets that I walked up and down in New York City and other places that I went to. Uh, and I paid attention to when I was seeing people on cell phones and the disliking that I invariably uh, went into. So I watched the disliking. I paid attention to the disliking. I saw the disliking, uh, the aversion, and I questioned it. So whenever I saw myself doing that, which is pretty much every time I saw somebody on a phone, uh, I questioned it. Is it useful? Is it in my best interests? Oftentimes, you know, I just kept proliferating. Look at that idiot. Is this useful? What a jerk. You know, is this in my best interest? Who does he think he is? Why is he, you know? I mean, it was like that, you know? Uh, I tried to get some space, and I'd ask the questions, and I'd ask the questions. Uh, but, you know, the, the thinking kept proliferating. Uh, but I would just tell myself, that's okay. That's okay, because I would get down on myself for, you know, continuing to, to think. And, you know, and sometimes I'd get a little more space and I'd, you know, I'd stop, but I just told myself, it's okay, you don't have to stop, just ask the questions. Just look and pay attention. Just look and pay attention. I don't have to stop the thinking, I have to observe it and pay attention to it. That's our practice. So, I did that. You know, I practiced what the Buddha calls repeated reflection for months, for years, really. For years, I kept asking, is it useful? What are the consequences? What are the consequences of this disliking? What are the consequences right now in this moment? The agitation, the suffering. What are the consequences long term? 
long term. Maybe I was walking to teach the class. What are the consequences in terms of my ability to teach the class tonight? How is this going to affect my mind when I get up in front of those students? What's, how is this going to affect teaching the class tomorrow and next week? How is it going to affect the book I'm writing? How is it going to affect my relationship with my friends? How is it going to affect me 5, 10, 15 years from now? I mean, this is what we're asked to ask. You know, what are the consequences of what we're doing? What are the long-term consequences? What kind of mind am I shaping? Is this a burden I want to continue to carry? Now, I, wrote, I write about this in, in, in my book. I feel like saying, in my first book. <laughs> uh, you know, and I say, this may seem like a lot of questions and really harsh, but it really isn't. It really isn't. I mean, if you can ask the questions with love and with compassion, uh, these are the kinds of questions we ask because we want to end our suffering. We want to lighten our burden. And really, you have to ask the questions you know, that pertain to the long-term consequences of your actions. Because oftentimes, the short-term consequences of our actions don't say, yeah, you know, it's, I'm getting a little rise out of it, making fun of that person or hating that person. But the long-term consequences those are the ones that are most damaging. So gradually, over time, I cultivated disenchantment with that particular form of disliking, that particular burden I was carrying around. I cultivated disenchantment. And when I would see somebody on the phone and that disliking would arise, I felt a disgust. You know, I felt a, a disgust. You know, and I didn't chase after those thoughts. And that's that healthy disgust of disenchantment, right? That's that healthy disgust. Ugh, I don't want to go there because that's bad food for the mind. You know, and gradually, you know, and I, this was a process too. I learned to be able to have compassion for some of those people that I was seeing on the streets. There were times, I've shared about this, when, you know, I would oh, practice metta for them, just like we talked about this morning. You know, there were times when I was able to walk down that street and see, and see everybody's goodness shining everybody's goodness shining because I had let go to some extent of the disliking and I was able to open my heart and see the goodness. I was able to see through to their hearts. So, I, you know, I, I did well with it. You know, then one day I was walking down 14th Street and there was somebody on a cell phone and I went into a tirade. Look at that idiot! The whole thing, you know. Venomous! Venomous! You know, and then it happened a couple of days later, again. I was like, I thought I, I thought I was done with this. I thought I was done with this. So what was happening was my past karma was arising, and I was holding on to it and engaging in thinking. I was proliferating that narrative of aversion. See, the problem in that, those moments when I went on that inner tirade when I saw the people on the phone, the problem was my past karma was arising, that disliking that I had, you know, that I had been doing and engaging in for so long, not just with people on phones, it was arising and I wasn't noticing it. I wasn't noticing it. I didn't notice it in those moments. And because I didn't notice it, I engaged in it. I engaged in it. But what about all those insights I had, you're probably asking. I thought he had purified his mind. It wasn't that the insights I developed 
weren't true or valuable. What it was, of course, was I didn't see the arising of the disliking, so I couldn't apply the insights that I had gained. How could I have insight and disenchantment with that disliking if I didn't see it? If I didn't see it. You know, all that work was valuable, but it didn't really do me much good if I couldn't see those mind states, that disliking and that aversion arising. The Buddha's law of karma is very important to understand. We have actions, and they have consequences in the moment, and they have consequences long-term. Long-term. Uh, when we take an action informed by disliking, aversion, uh, we condition the arising of that mental quality of disliking, of aversion in the future. One of the ways that the Buddha really talked about it, and we like to talk about it, is when you engage, when you, you know, and it's really the engaging in it, you know, it arises and you go into the story and the narrative and maybe you make a, you know, you make a face at the person, you know, and maybe you make a little comment under your breath. I always found when you did that, it didn't really matter because they were so focused on the <laughs> thing. They never noticed. Didn't they notice? They were like, like this. You know? So whenever we engage in, in that kind of an action, uh, we condition the arising of that mental action in the future. So we throw these seeds in front of us. It's like we, we, we have these seeds and we throw them in front of us. We throw them in front of us. We throw them in front of front of front of us. So I engaged over the years in lots of disliking in this particular context and other places. So I had thrown a lot of seeds, a lot of seeds in front of me. And you know, when we throw those seeds in front of me, we don't know when we're going to come upon them. Some of those seeds we might come upon two years from now, three years from now, five years from now. We don't know when we're going to come upon those seeds. It's kind of like, you know, you know, after some war and the landmines are still in the ground. It's like in Germany, uh, uh, you know, when they have they, they had a couple of forest fires recently, and you know, it's like really dangerous. The forest fires, not so much because of the fires, because of all the buried ordnance in the ground from the war. You know, the bombs are just going off like crazy when there's a fire. They say it's like wild. You know, the firefighters can't go in there because of all the bombs, because of all the ordinance that's in the ground that was never removed. So in our lives, we're walking through these landscapes strewn with landmines, really probably a more apt metaphor than seeds, but they're strewn with, strewn with seeds that we've thrown ahead of us. You know, as we learn to change our karma and our habits of thinking, less seeds in front of us, but still lots of seeds on our path in front of us. Lots of seeds that we've thrown. You know, the metaphor the Buddha used is we throw these seeds in front of us, and if we don't bring attention to them when we come to them, we'll pour water on them. And when we pour the water on them, that'll give rise to the growth of many plants, you know, many plants. He said, a field of vegetation and plants. Just think of that. Now, if we come across those seeds and don't water them, no problem. No problem. But if we don't see the seeds, and in those occasions, I wasn't paying attention, I didn't see the seeds, and I watered them. 
and I watered them. Those seeds were there. So the, the real point here, right, is that your past karma will arise. You've thrown those seeds ahead of you. You'll water them. They'll sprout and grow. Forests will form. You'll act out on your past karma unless you're able to see the arising of the past karma, unless you're able to see the seeds. Unless you're heedful. Heedfulness is what enables us to see the arising of past karma. You know, we see those seeds, we see those that movement to disliking or desire or views and opinions, and we question whether it's useful to water those seeds. Is this a seed I want to water? What kind of forest am I going to create in front of me? What kind of vegetation and weeds and all this kind of foliage is going to be, am I going to create? You know, that's, those are all metaphors for suffering. You know? <clears throat> so it's a really important point because, you know, we can do all the work. You know, we can do all the work that we should do to understand our habits of mind. You know, we do a lot of work to understand our habits of mind, to investigate our emotions, aversion, desire, liking, disliking, views and opinions. You know, we can spend years studying our mental habits through meditation, through psychotherapy, reading books. And these are things that we should do, that we should do. But everything we've learned, all the insights that we've gained won't matter if we don't have awareness if we're not heedful, if we don't notice the seeds of past karma. You know, so we tend to put the emphasis on, let me understand this emotion and find the roots of it. When that, that's all great, and we need to do that, and that helps us identify the seeds when we come across them. It, 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 it doesn't get us very far if we don't notice those seeds, because we'll still water them, no matter how much we've learned. It's like... But I've done 20 years of therapy. Why am I, you know, I know we have some therapists here. You know, why am I still like this and that? Or I've done 20 years of meditation. I've done 20 years of meditation, but I never learned to be heedful. You know, how come I've done 20 years of meditation and I'm still, you know, suffering and acting out on all my likes and dislikes and aversion and desire? It doesn't matter if you investigate and you do this and that and everything in terms of the emotions. And, 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 and all the mental qualities. You have, if you don't notice them when they arise, if you don't notice those seeds of past karma when they arise, you're going to water them most of the time, and you're going to suffer. You're going to create these fields in front of you. No matter how much work we've done, the seeds of your past karma have been sown. They're in front of you. No matter how many therapist you've gone to, no matter how many times you've sat in meditation, no matter how many times that you've heard Dubinin talk about aversion and disliking. I, you know why I talk about, you know why I talk about likes and dislikes and, and views and opinions? So that you can see those seeds when the ground in front of you. You know, I'm trying to be really specific so you notice those particular seeds. Oh, there's a marigold. There's, you know, you know, it's like, there's views and opinions. You know, you need to notice those seeds when they start to, to sprout. It's like no matter how much, you know, those seeds, no matter how much work we've done, you're going to come upon those seeds. You're going to come to, uh, across those seeds. The work will help you recognize them. 
Listening to the Dharma talks will help you recognize them. Therapy was instrumental. I mean, I didn't know what those seeds were. I mean, a lot of them I couldn't find in meditation. I needed to go to therapy to see which seeds were in front of me. Meditation showed me what to do when I came across the seeds. So if we don't practice heedfulness, we will cling and we will suffer. You know, I've done, I mean, I've done a tremendous amount of work to, uh, to try to change the negative, painful habits of mind that over the course of the years I developed and exacerbated and continued to act out on. You know, years and years of meditation, you know, psychotherapy, body work, 12 steps, I mean, you know, everything. You know, I did all that, but I still found myself getting caught in patterns of aversion and desire after all those years. You know, what I thought, of course, was I got to do more work. Maybe find another therapist, maybe do something different, you know maybe a different kind of body work. But mostly what I needed to do was to learn to be heedful and pay attention to those seeds when I came across them. When I learned to do that, everything changed. That was the most important thing I did and the thing that had the most impact, the most dramatic impact. You know, when I learned to be heedful and pay attention to those seeds that were in front of me, that's when my life began to change. I'm not saying this to be dramatic, you know. I mean, this is the truth. My life began to change measurably when I learned to practice heedfulness. Then I started to see things change. You know, the Buddha said, heedfulness is the root of all skillfulness. Heedfulness is the root of all skillful qualities. So this is, you know, in many ways, the most important skill that we have to learn. Because if we don't learn this skill... We're going to suffer. We're going to act out on our past karma. So heedfulness includes being aware of experience as it arises. Thoughts, emotions, intention, all those things. Aversion and desire and liking and disliking. The intention to act with those or to take mental action or to go into narratives. Heedfulness is being aware of experience when it desires particularly being aware of clingable phenomena, you know, being aware of the seeds of past karma, being aware of the aversion and desire and all their shapes that they take, the liking and the disliking, the self-views, the narratives, the stories, the stories. You know, we haven't talked so much on this retreat about stories. We've done these retreats in the past where that was kind of the main thing, our stories, our stories, our stories. You know, I, you know and, and I always kind of, you know, it's like, you can talk about your stories, and, and, but, but, you know, and it's good to understand what they are, but, you know, you need to know, learn to know what you can do about them. You know, it's, it's great if you know what they are and you talk about them and the Dharma teacher talks about it, but, you know, the only way that you're going to change them or do anything about them if they're painful is you have to see them when you're engaging in them. And I found for myself that, you know, I didn't even realize quite what my stories were you know, until I started to notice them and pay attention to them by being heedful. Sometimes it was after the fact. You know, the Buddha says you can pay attention after the fact. 
So we pay attention to the arising of phenomena and we apply wisdom. We apply wisdom. Is it useful? Is this something I have to cling to? Is this something that if I don't cling to it, it will come and go? Is this mine? Is it a fixed component of who I am? Just what we've been talking about. Sometimes we really need to ask the questions. Sometimes just seeing is enough. Sometimes just seeing those seeds is enough. You know, we see with the eyes of wisdom and compassion. Sometimes you don't even need that much wisdom and compassion to see that that's not something that you should go into. If we practice and we have learned about these particular mental qualities and we've cultivated disenchantment, you know, we usually just need to look at and we'll see and we'll see that, you know, that disenchantment quality will arise and we'll, we don't have to ask the question so much. It's like, no, I don't want to engage in that. You know, as we become more in the heart, you know, the heart sees, you know, but you have to have the space and be heedful so the heart can see. If we don't see, you know, our wisdom and compassion is for naught. You know, I talk about this all the time, you know, all the time. You know, wisdom and compassion, they're great topics for workshops, you know. But if you don't see what's in front of you, you can't apply your wisdom. If you don't see your suffering and be with it, you can't apply compassion. You know, it's like, it's like if you don't develop heedfulness, you know, those things you learn in, work, in workshops is like subjects you learned in high school. It's like trigonometry, you know? <laughs> you know? I think that would be a good Dharma talk, the trigonometry of compassion. <laughs> Probably fill the auditorium. You know? It's like, he's talking about the trigonometry of compassion. Too. <laughs> so the key is seeing, right? The key, as I've been saying on this retreat, is awareness, is awareness. Now, even after the Buddha became awakened and enlightened and started to teach. You know, he was visited by Mara, the personification of unskillful qualities. Mara would come visit, and what did the Buddhists do? I see you, Mara. I see you. I see you. And Mara, what would Mara say? Ah, the Blessed One sees me. Drat. And he'd walk off disconsolate. I see you, Mara. I see you. The Pali word for heedfulness is apamata. Apamata. Apamata is sometimes translated as diligence or vigilance or zeal or ardency. You know, and, and so what that implies is, you know, we always have to be vigilant. We always have to be a pay, paying attention for past karma when it arising. You know, we have to pay attention for those seeds that are in front of us. They're out there, but we don't know where they are. You know, that's one of the laws of karma. It's like you don't know when those seeds are going to be presented to you. That's one of the tricky laws of karma. So you don't know when you're going to come across that, right? You ever notice that? Like, man, I haven't done that in so long. And then, I'm, you know, it's like those seeds have just, you know, it's, the Buddha said you can't figure that out. You just, and that's why, one of the reasons why you have to be so diligent and pay such close attention, be on guard. The Buddha's last words, continue to be heedful. Bring about completion by being heedful. He was talking to a group of stream enterers, first level of enlightenment, but they still had past karma and they had to be heedful of it. 
They weren't going to become fully enlightened if they weren't paying attention to those seeds in front of them. Bring about completion by being heedful, the Buddha said. I'm going to talk now about the thing about heedfulness that is probably the most challenging. It is the most challenging, I think. When you practice heedfulness, when you're seeing arising phenomena, like liking and disliking, my seeing the disliking as I go down 14th Street, you have to see it in real time. You have to see it in real time. Now, when past karma arises, you have to see it when it's arising. If you latch onto it, you have to see it when you're latching onto it, when you're watering. You have to see yourself with a watering bucket. After the fact is okay for learning about what your, you know, what your uh, patterns of unskillfulness and what mental patterns uh, that you're clinging to and are causing you suffering are like. You know, you learn from that and you learn a little bit about the suffering. So maybe the next time when you actually see it in real time, you're able to apply what you learned, you know, intellectually by thinking about it after the fact. This is the hardest thing. So many times, you know, I'll talk to people and they say, yeah, you know, a lot of anger was arising or, you know, a lot of anxiety, you know. And, you know, what's my question, right? Some of you know. Do you see it when it's arising? No. But, I mean, you know, that's because that's the hardest thing, to see it when it's arising. You know, I'm not, I don't want to be judgmental, uh, because that's really, but that's what we need to learn to do, is to see it when it's arising. That's how you develop wisdom, liberating wisdom. The Buddha's wisdom comes from seeing when these objects are arising, as they're arising, when you're engaging with them. If you don't see them when you're arising, we won't develop wisdom, and you'll create more karma. So if we're going to develop wisdom and not create more karma and alleviate our suffering, we have to see this, these seeds and the way that we water these seeds in real time. This is really important. I mean, if you, if you really look at the Buddha's teachings, uh, you know, it's interesting because you can look at the themes he's working with, and he's working with this theme and that theme and this theme and the other in terms of insight. Every time he says, you've got to do this in real time. You know, sometimes he uses different ways of saying that, but he always says that. That passage I read the other night, as it is, right? Blatant and subtle, as it is. One that he uses a lot that I like is according to reality. But when he, whenever he tells you to look at phenomena, he tells you to look at it according to reality, in real time. That's the challenge, right? It's like a number of years ago, I, uh, I got this rash on my arm, you know? It was pretty gnarly, but went away after a few days, and then, you know, a month later, I got it again. I was like, ah, oh, this sucks, you know? Another month, I got it again a few months after that. I said, I gotta go to the dermatologist, you know? So I went up to the dermatologist, over to this dermatologist that somebody recommended to me, and he said, eh, you know, I think I kind of know what it is, but you've got to come when it's actually active, you know? And then, I can take a, and then I can take a culture, and I can figure out what it is and give you the medication. Okay, you know? So the next time, you know, it's like, it's, it's there, you know? And I, and I popped down to his office, he took a culture, he gave me medication, never came back. 
That was 1984. The guy's still my dermatologist. <laughs> Seriously. Great guy. Great guy. I'll have to send him a copy of this. But it's the same thing. You have to see it in real time. You have to see it in real time. So, you know, that leads us to the next question. What enables us to see it in real time? You've got to be present. And that's, that's really the rub, right? That's really the rub. You've got to be present. That's the biggest problem that we have is that we're not present. So we have to be present, which means we have to be in the body. Well, how do we get to the body? In our practice, we use the breath. The breath becomes our center to keep us in the body, to keep us in the present moment. So we do what we've been doing for this last week. We develop jhana. We develop jhana. I've really challenged you guys over this past week to develop jhana, more so than in any other retreat. Develop jhana, develop these qualities, you know? I mean, I challenged you guys a lot over this past week with a lot of these teachings, you know? Uh, so I, uh, you know, I, I, you know, and I think everybody has really taken to it. I mean, I really see how people's practice in terms of developing their jhana is developing, you know? It's like we have to set these high expectations for ourselves. So we develop jhana the way we've done this week because you have to have strong concentration that's so, uh, because you have to have, as I've been saying, a concentration that's maintainable. So that when we're in the world, we're centered and present so we can be heedful. That's why we're doing, in large part, why, what we're doing. So that we can maintain present moment awareness in the world, so that we can see the seeds of past karma when they arise, so that we can be heedful, so that we can pay attention to our actions and be happy in this life. That's why we're doing what we're doing. And that's something we all can do. The Buddha, as most of you know, often ended his Dharma talks, this isn't the end, by the way, uh, <laughs> often ended his talks by saying, over there are the roots of trees, over there are abandoned buildings, practice jhana, monks, don't be heedless, don't later fall into regret. This is our message to you. We could, we could have put it this way. Over there is uh, Pitt Hall. Over there is the Anna Curtis building. Practice jhana yogis. Yeah. What, is he, what is his message? Practice jhana, develop concentration, be heedful. This is our message to you. Don't later fall into regret. Don't later fall into regret. Most of us, most beings, most beings, don't cultivate jhana. You know, don't maintain present moment awareness. Don't see those seeds in front of them. And they water those seeds and they reenact past karma again and again and again and again and again. You know, the Buddha talked about wandering on, wandering on. My favorite passage. It's sort of become that over the past few years, right? Which is greater, the tears you have shed while transmigrating and wandering on this long, long time, crying and weeping from being joined with what is displeasing, being separated from what is pleasing, or the water in the four great oceans. This is greater, the tears you have shed. Transmigrating and wandering on and on, continuing to suffer. We continue to cling to the same things in the same way over and over and over again. This is what's known as samsara, right? We just keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. And this gets passed on, if you believe in that, into the next lifetime. 
You know, that's kind of what gets passed on. You know, if, you th- if I think about it, you know, if, if you don't think about it in terms of lifetimes, you know, other, you know, reincarnation, you can think about family karma. You know, it's like, you know, I always talk about my family, you know, Russian army, my grandfather was a major, you know, in the Russian army, like my father always used to say, you know, in our family, the men were interested in guns and vodka. You know, my father, you know, was an angry, you know, and you know, very cynical, violent guy. You know, that was sort of my family karma. He didn't have those skills. You know, he didn't have the skills of being able to pay attention to his karma. He didn't have any choice because they were there and he didn't know what else to do. You know, and I know that I have that, you know, that family karma inside of me. So, you know, most beings find themselves wandering on, wandering on, wandering on in this huge forest jungle of vegetation and trees and, you know, scrubby plants and you name it. I mean, where they can, you can't see anything except all the vegetation. And, I mean, that's from all the seeds that we've watered and the results of all those seeds that we've watered. You know, we try to move forward in this life, but we don't see the seeds that are thrown ahead of us and we water them and the forest is so thick. It's so thick, it's so thick. More, and so we more, there's more seeds ahead and we water them and it gets thicker and thicker and thicker and thicker. The thicker it gets, the harder it is to see. We can't see those seeds, and we water them, and we water them, and we never get out of the forest of suffering. We never get out of that forest. Some of us, somehow, find a desire to find a way out. Have a desire to find a way out, you know? I don't want to suffer anymore. I've got to stop watering these seeds. I want to find a way out of this forest. Somehow, we found our way to this practice. You know? It offers us a way out of this forest. I mean, how did I find... I mean, I've talked about this before. Uh, you know, I mean, we are so blessed to have found a way. Most people never find a way, and they live their lives in that forest. You know? It's like, you know, and, you know, the Buddha kind of alludes to this. It's, it's really impossible to know how we ended up here. You know? I mean, I always attribute it, you know, maybe it has something to do with Sunday school, the Beatles, growing up in the 60s, 1971, going into my sister's room probably to play a record and seeing a book on yoga there. This looks interesting. Devouring it, starting to practice yoga, you know, mostly for physical, but, you know, starting to get into it. 1975, maybe one of the most pivotal days. Newing Hall, Binghamton, SUNY Binghamton, walk into my room, there's my roommate meditating. It's like, wow. <laughs> Big Ed, right? 6'4, <laughs> huge red afro, white guy with a huge red afro wearing a dashiki. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he meditated every day. You know, and that was the first person I ever saw who meditated. I said, you gotta teach me that. I gotta learn that. How to learn that. Could have had a roommate who was into crocheting. 
so we've been so blessed. We've been given this gift, you know, and we need to make the most of it. And how we do that? How do we make the most of it? We're so fortunate. So this is what the Buddha means when so few people find this teaching. So few people find a way out of the forest. What do we do and how do we repay that gift? It's a three-letter word. Sit. You know, we practice. We sit, we sit, we sit, we sit. The daily sitting is the most important. We sit, we sit, we sit, we sit. We do what we're doing here. We practice meditation. We start to get a little more present, right? We're wandering in the forest, but now we're practicing a little meditation. We're starting to get a little more present, and we start to notice a few of those seeds. I see, you know, I'm going to walk around those seeds. I've learned a few things. Forest starts to thin a little bit, right? Starts to thin. Start to practice a little more. You know, this is good. The forest is getting a little thinner. It's not, you know, maybe I practice a little more. I'm noticing more seeds. Not going to water them. Gets a little thinner and thinner and thinner. Our meditation develops. We see more. We do less watering. There's less vegetation. And gradually, the forest begins, they begin to become clearings and we see the light. You know, there's a light. And we make our way out of the forest. Out of our suffering. We were talking in one of the groups about the phrase in metta, may I awaken and be free. You know, this is what we're doing. We're awakening. We're coming out of this darkness and we're free. We lay down the burdens on the mind. We free the mind. We have a mind that's free. We're free. And from there, we can take action that's not driven by past karma, that's not driven by aversion and desire, that's not driven by likes and dislikes. Instead, we can take action that's motivated by the heart, by compassion and metta. That's what we're able to do when we get out of the forest, when we walk towards the light. And we all kind of, I mean, I, I, I like that metaphor, uh, because I think we can all, you know, I mean, and certainly that's how it's been for me, and I think we can all identify that. You know, there starts to be, you know, there's this darkness, and there starts to be light. You start to notice that there is a way out. You notice that because, and, and this is my experience, and I, I think this is constant with the teachings, you notice that because you start taking action that's in your best interests. You start taking action that's informed by metta and compassion. Because action, as I said the other night, is the fruition of the path. So you start noticing, you know, because you're purifying your mind, right? So there's less desire and aversion, you're more connected to the heart, and you start noticing, okay, which actions do I need to take that are gonna be actions that come out of love and compassion? But action is hard, right? Action is hard to do. I've, you know, I mean, I always say that, and I've kind of talked about that. On the other side, you know, in the groups, I've talked to people who have talked about actions that they've been taking and things that they've been doing in their lives, you know, that are really, uh, that just really heartened me to hear you know, people taking actions and doing new things that are an expression of their hearts. So, we can take action if action is informed by love. And I'm not saying you can take action if it's informed by love. You know, our ability to take action depends on our action being informed by the heart. 
when we're when we perceive actions, the actions that are motivated by the heart, there's a quality of sureness. You know, we know this is an action that I want to take, that I should take. You know, there's a sureness that we have. There's a strength. And we're able to overcome the fear that we all fear in taking actions because love is what overcomes fear. So even though there's fear, we're able to move forward and take actions because love is driving the actions that we're taking so we can go move past fear. So we practice. You know, we practice this. We sit. We develop concentration. We develop discernment so that we can put down the burdens. So that we can come out of the head, you know, out of the narratives and the stories, out of the dream, and wake up and be in the body and be in the heart. You know, this practice is about coming closer to the heart, coming closer to the heart. Ajahn Mahaboa says when concentration develops, awareness converges right there at the heart, and we live right from the heart. So as Dharma students, we learn to polish the heart. We develop this awareness of the heart and connection to the heart, and we polish the heart. We polish the heart. So tonight's suggestion, and this is not just for this retreat, but going forward, is polish the heart every day. Polish the heart every day. Polish the heart every day. We talked a little bit about it this morning in the instructions. There's many ways to polish the heart. What did Rumi say? There's many ways to kneel and kiss the ground. Take down a musical instrument. People talked about that, you know, returning to their creativity. Help another person. People talked about that. Starting new ventures. Going on adventures. I mean, the metta meditation is good, right? The metta meditation is good. That polishes the heart. As we go throughout our days, we try as much as we can to touch in. Let me be here listening to this Dharma talk with love and compassion. Let me give this Dharma talk. Let me go back to my room. Let me interact with my family with metta and compassion. We touch into the heart in all the actions that we take. But we learn to develop the heart by taking action. We learn to develop the heart by taking action. Again, it may be these small actions that we take that help us polish the heart. If it's with friends, family, person on the elevator, we take these actions in support of our wish to be happy out of self-love, like coming to the retreat, like coming to the retreat. You know, I could, you know, it it was interesting because I was like, well, I could come up with a million suggestions for, you know, actions that you can take, but they're really sort of for me, right? You know, it's like I say, dance, go listen to your music. And I was like, I don't want to dance, you know? It's like, you know what to do. You know what to do. The truth is already in the heart. The truth is already in your heart. What you need to do is already in your heart. You just have to look and see what's there. So a good question that we can go forward is, with is, what can I do today to polish the heart? So let's just close our eyes for a minute.